We're beginning our third and final session. Uh, this session is going to be on the sacrament of confession, which is going to be a little bit different than what we've been talking about up to up till now. Because up till now, we've been talking about disciplines, fasting and um, and uh, and self-examination are disciplines. We might call them sacramental um, in that when we practice disciplines, we can receive grace from them. But the sacraments proper, as we'll see in a moment, are means of grace. They're means by which God uh, communicates grace to us. Now, two uh, funny stories about confession. Um, the first is that uh, there's a story about two teenage boys and they, they go to confession at their Roman Catholic church and um, the one boy goes uh, to the priest and he says, Father, forgive me, I've sinned. I've been with a loose woman. The priest says, who was it? The boy says, I'm, I don't really feel comfortable saying. He says, well, was it Jane? He says, no, it wasn't Jane. Well, was it Elizabeth? No, it wasn't Elizabeth. Well, was it, uh, was it, uh, was it, um, I don't know. Name, name it. Was it uh, Catherine? No, no, it wasn't Catherine. The priest says, okay, I can tell you're not going to, you're not going to give it up. So he gives him his absolution and his penance. So the boy goes out and his friend is sitting there in the pews and friend says, uh, well, what'd you get? He said, well, I got 25, our fathers, 50 Hail Marys and three new leads. <laughs> the other, the other story, my, my grandmother was raised, uh, Roman Catholic in, uh, outside of Boston, Massachusetts, so sort of Irish Catholic. So she went to make her first confession at the age of six, and she told the priest that she had uh, committed the sin of adultery because she thought that meant disrespecting an adult. <laughs> so before we jump into confession specifically, I, I wanted to step back and review and ask the question, what is a sacrament to begin with? What do we mean when we say the word sacrament? It's a word we uh, throw around a lot in our liturgy um, and in our theology, um, but it's helpful to remember what that means. So properly understood, a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Hugh of St. Victor, one of my favorite medieval theologians, says that a sacrament is a sign of a sacred thing. Article 25 in the 39 articles in the back of the Book of Common Prayer calls sacraments sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace and God's goodwill towards us, by the which he doth work invisibly in us and doth not only quicken, but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. Why, though? Why would God give us sacraments? Why bread and wine? Why water? Why marriage? Why, why do we need these things for God to give us grace? Why can't he just give us grace directly instead of going through all this bread and wine and water stuff? Hugh gives us three reasons why he gives us the sacraments. The first is to teach us humility. He says that we humans are the pinnacle of God's creation, but in the sacraments we become subjected to material things to teach us to abandon our pride and acknowledge our frailty. They also instruct us. The sacraments instruct us because sacraments use what we can see, what we can touch, what we can smell, what we can taste, and what we can hear to teach us something about invisible and spiritual realities. So Hugh says, for the sick man cannot see the medicine, but he can see the visual in which the medicine is given. So 
you can see the container that holds the medicine, but you can't, when you see Tylenol, uh, you know, a, a cap, capsule of Tylenol, you can't see all of the parts of the Tylenol, right? You, you just see Tylenol, you take it and you know it's going to work. Sometimes maybe it even works more as a placebo, right? Um, so in the sacraments, the knowledge that we obtain through the reception of visible things ultimately orients us towards both experiencing and knowing God's love, but also allowing or enabling us to love him in return. So Josh and I were just talking, um, and, uh, and those of us who grew up in the evangelical world where there are no sacraments, uh, it's based on your faith. So you get baptized because you already had faith, and you're getting baptized to tell everybody, hey, I had faith. The problem with that is, how do you ever know you had enough faith? So I have friends who have been baptized three or four times, and each time it's, well, I really mean it this time. Well, you know, I mean, God bless them, but it's, it's not quite the way that it, it works. So the sacraments instruct us. So, so, for example, if you want to know, does God love me? The sacraments instruct you. Yes, God loves you. You were baptized. You don't have to stay up at night wringing your hands, wondering, ah, oh, that horrible sin I've committed. Can God really love me? Yes, he can. He does. Um, finally, uh, so they, they teach us humility, they instruct us, and finally, they train us. So the sacraments were instituted to provide us with the renewal of devotion that leads to sanctity. So especially the Eucharist, you can think of as the manna from heaven, which the Israelites had to receive as they wandered in the wilderness. We wander in this wilderness of life. Uh, Oftentimes our strength fails, but God continually provides for us in the sacrament of Holy Communion and the other sacraments as well. There are different ways to categorize the seven sacraments, um, and there are seven sacraments. Um, There's some discussion among Anglicans as to whether there's two or seven. Uh, The 39 articles say that there are two sacraments as as are generally necessary for salvation, and they mean baptism and uh, and, uh, Holy Eucharist. Uh, That's not wrong per se, um, but it doesn't mean that the other five sacraments aren't sacraments. Um, so what, what they are, uh, so, so the common uh, distinction is the dominical sacraments and the sacraments of the church. The dominical sacraments are the ones instituted by Christ, baptism and the Eucharist. He institutes those directly, right? At his ascension, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And at the, at the, he, at the Last Supper, he institutes the Eucharist. The sacraments of the church include penance, or what we commonly call confession, ordination, confirmation, marriage, and unction, or healing, or, uh, or last rites. There are other ways you can think about these. There are sacraments of the dead, speaking of the spiritually dead. So baptism is a sacrament of the dead. You go to the baptismal waters dead in sin. You come out alive in Christ. And the other sacrament of the dead is the sacrament of confession, um, because through mortal sin, you, uh, at least in some theologies, you, you die spiritually, and you go to confession where you have the grace that was given to you at baptism renewed. Um, and then the other sacraments would be the sacraments of the living, sacrament uh, that would include Eucharist, ordination, confirmation, marriage, and unction. These all require you to, to be a uh, baptized Christian already. The final way we might divide them is, uh, is to say there are sacraments that we receive only once, baptism, uh, ordination, confirmation. You don't get reordained or reconfirmed or rebaptized. 
And then uh, because each of those uh, sacraments bring with them an indelible mark or character on the soul of the receiver. So once a priest, always a priest. Even if you're not serving as a priest, you're always a priest. If you've been confirmed, you will always be confirmed, even if you are lapsed and apostate. There are then sacraments that we receive more than once, like the Eucharist, confession, uh, marriage, which you have to caveat a little bit. um, But basically, I think what they mean by that is if your spouse dies, you can get remarried. Um, And then finally, uh, unction. We can receive healing, uh, anointing with oil for healing more than once. Ultimately, none of these categorizations are right or wrong. Um, It's not like you have to take one of these over the others. They just help us understand the nature and the function of each of the seven sacraments. So the beauty of the sacraments is that they work in the Latin ex opera operator. Ex opere, I think it auto-corrected me on the slide. Ex opere operator, which means uh, by the deed done or by the work worked. So... Uh, What that means is if someone baptizes with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the baptism happened. And you don't have to wonder, did the person doing the baptism have enough faith? Did the person receiving the baptism have enough faith? The answer is the baptism worked. It stuck. Or else we would never know. We would never have that assurance. It's the evangelical problem that we talked about earlier. So for a sacrament to be validly administered, it has to have three things, uh, matter, form, and intention. So matter, so let's just take baptism as our model sacrament. The matter in baptism is the thing used. So you need an unbaptized person and water. And that's it. If you have those two things, you can do a baptism. Then there's a form. The form is what the, either what the church has received from the words of our Lord or, uh, or what the church has commonly acknowledged to be the form. So if you're baptizing, the form is, I baptize thee in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. You may have seen this story about the Catholic priest who was saying, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And the church said, you can't say that because it's not a valid form. Now, some people said that was the church being too nitpicky. I kind of disagree. I actually think, um, so for example, during the Eucharist, we wouldn't say, this is our body, would we? We would say, this is my body, because who is speaking? Jesus. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost is a similar dynamic. It's not the church that makes the baptism, baptism. It's our Lord that makes the baptism, baptism. So it would be better to say, I believe, or I baptize you. Now, there's something called the baptism of desire. So if somebody wants to be baptized, if they, if they want that and they're, for whatever reason, denied, the church tends to believe God bestows grace on them for the desire. Or if someone is martyred before they're baptized, we call that a baptism of blood. So um, the normal means is baptism through water, but God can work apart from the sacraments. He's bound to the sacraments. Where the sacraments are rightly administered, he's there. He's not bound by the sacraments. He can work outside of the sacraments um, as, as he wishes to. So I don't think any of those people who received the we baptize you are by necessity going to hell because of it. 
But it is a matter of now of regularizing them, of saying, okay, let's, we, it's an easy fix, right? All you do, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and it's done. Yes, sir? I've heard the question, can anyone baptize? Ah, can anyone baptize? Yes, anyone can baptize. And the reason for that is that baptism as a sacrament of initiation into the church has a very, very low bar. Um, and it should, right? Because to join the church, to receive God's gift of grace should be, uh, should be open to all people. And so even a non-Christian can baptize, actually, which is very interesting. Um, as long as they use the proper form and the proper, um, the proper matter, it is a valid baptism. Um, that actually brings us to the third point of what you need for a sacrament to be valid, which is intention. The intention is to do what the church intends to do or what the church has expressed in the proper form. So this does not mean the intention of the person doing the sacrament. So if I get up and say the mass and I don't really, let's say I'm really tired and I'm just not really enthusiastic or really thinking about it. I'm thinking about, let's say I'm thinking about my fantasy football game later that day, right? Uh, Horrible, horrible thing to do during the mass, but sometimes it might happen, right? Um, the mass is not affected by my lack of intentionality. The intention is not set by me, the individual minister. The intention is set by the form of the liturgy. Which is why then baptism can be done by anyone. Um, because the intention is set by the words, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So yes, anyone can baptize. The normal means is for the minister to do it. And it's normal to do it uh, kind of at the entryway of the church to symbolize the child or the person entering the church, becoming a member of the church. But, um, but in an emergency situation, you can baptize. Um, or, or you know, if there's a family situation where they you know, specifically want you to baptize for some reason, that can be arranged as well. So... Um, what this means is that the baptismal act is the efficient cause of regeneration of the person who has been baptized. Or to put it simply, baptism does what it says it does. So after we baptize someone, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, we say, this child being made regenerate, they were made regenerate in the act of the baptism. So the baptism did what it was supposed to do. And what this also means is that the moral character of the minister does not prevent a sacrament from working. So Article uh, 26 of the 39 Articles says, Neither is the effect of Christ's ordinance taken away by the wickedness of a minister, nor the grace of God's gifts diminished from such as by faith and rightly do receive the sacraments ministered unto them, which be effectual because of Christ's institution and promise, although they be ministered by evil men. So if you have a priest who later it comes out, he was abusive or he was you know, a drunk or whatever, uh, you don't have to wonder, oh, was I re- you know, did it work? <laughs> um, so, so if that priest had done, it, done the, the baptisms correctly, they wouldn't have had to worry, even if it came out later, he was a really bad guy. I'm sure he wasn't a bad guy. I think he just was a little misguided. Um, So a sacrament is a visible expression or sign of an inward and spiritual grace that's imparted to us by the Holy Ghost to inculcate humility, teach us about God and his purposes, and to strengthen us. 
Now, there is a problem, a problem that the church had to answer, and it took them a couple um, couple hundred years to figure this out. Uh, and that problem is sin after baptism. So in order to understand the need for confession, we have to talk first a little bit about baptism. So baptism bestows three graces on the person who receives it. Um, the first is that it remits or cancels or sets aside all of our sin, original and actual. So original sin is the imperfection of our nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve. It's that propensity in us to reject God. It's our inability to receive the pure truth from him without mixing error into it. So that's, that is removed from us when we're baptized. The second thing that's removed from us is actual sin, which is our, all the sinful actions that we've committed, all the things we're actually guilty of doing. That's been totally washed away. The second grace that we receive in baptism is what we call sanctifying grace, the grace to become more holy. And we get that through the infusion of the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, or love. So we are baptized, we, we get those implanted. You, you ever used a tea diffuser? And you, you watch it as you put it in first, and the tea begins to seep out. And it eventually, if you wait long enough, the whole uh, cup turns into the tea, right? But it takes a little bit of time. Um, that's the way the Christian life is. At baptism, we're given what we need. We're given faith, hope, and love. We're made alive by God. But then the Christian life is one where through good, good deeds and through receiving the sacraments, through prayer, we grow into who it is we're supposed to be. So baptism plants a seed and, then, and gives us the ability to maintain that seed so that it can become a great tree later. And then finally, what baptism does is it translates us from the genealogy of the first Adam— to the genealogy of the new Adam. So a person who has been baptized can be said to be in Christ. This makes us, by extension, children of God and inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. But here's where the problem comes in. You've been given these great gifts, and then you sin. What do you do? You can't get rebaptized because it's one of those sacraments you only receive once. You are not re-initiated into the church through baptism after you have been initiated the first time. So if you sin, does that mean that God is somehow unfaithful to the promises made to you at your baptism? I don't think so. The solution for some of the early Christians was to just put off baptism. Don't get baptized until you're right about to die, and then you can't sin afterwards. Problem is, uh, that's not super advisable because... Who knows when we're going to die? Hopefully we'll be able to prepare for our deaths, but you never know. Um, And also it would keep us from taking Holy Communion, which is really the pinnacle of our worship. So E.B. Pusey, who is one of my favorite Anglican theologians, um, says that the sacrament of penitence were not needed if we ever kept faithfully the gift in baptism. It is but a second plank given to us by the mercy of God after shipwreck. This was not an unforeseen problem, nor was the sacrament of penance a purely ad hoc construction. It was brought about because of this issue of post-baptismal sin, but um, there is biblical data that supports it. So, for example, confession is supposed to be part of a regular, a regular part of the Christian life. James 5.16, confess your faults one to another and pray for another that ye may be healed. 1 John 1.9, 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These verses assume that there is a corporate and ecclesial aspect to confession. Why? Because there's a corporate and ecclesial aspect to our sins. So Paul compares being a member of Christ, a member of the church, to being a part of the body. If one part of the body is sick, the whole body is sick. So what's done in, in private is a sin that still affects the whole body of Christ. And therefore, it needs to be dealt with by that body. In this respect, the practice of confession is the extension of self-examination. Augustine says the confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. So confession is a part of the Christian life, but also it should be pointed out that the authority to absolve sins, to pronounce sins forgiven, was delegated to the apostles by our Lord himself. So in St. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus talking to Peter says, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He is not here talking to all Christians. He's talking specifically to Peter, the apostle. In John chapter 20, verses 22 to 24, we have what is often called by scholars the Johannine Pentecost. Jesus breathed on the 12 apostles and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, whosesoever sins ye remit, They are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. This authority, which was bestowed upon the apostles, was given to the bishops that succeeded them, and that authority was then delegated to priests who represent the bishop. This is clearly acknowledged in our prayer book. So this morning at morning prayer, during the, well, during the longer absolution, which actually I don't usually use unless it's a Sunday morning, the priest says to the people, Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who desireth not the death of a sinner, but rather that he may turn from his wickedness and live, hath given power and commandment to his ministers to declare and pronounce to his people being penitent, the absolution and remission of their sins. He pardoneth and absolveth all those who truly repent and unfeignedly believe his holy gospel. Of course, we also receive an absolution during the mass after the confession as well. This is clearly delegated to the priest by the bishop in the ordination liturgy itself. So if you have your prayer book, page 546 includes a section where the bishop lays hands on the priest and says, Receive the Holy Ghost for the office and work of a priest in the church of God, now committed unto thee by the imposition of our hands. Whose sins thou dost forgive, they are forgiven. And whose sins thou dost retain, they are retained. And be thou a faithful dispenser of the word of God and of his holy sacraments. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Now, at this juncture, I often get a question, and I've certainly heard people talk about this. Father Wes is too Catholic. He talks about confession too much. Um, Is this an Anglican thing to do? Is this an Anglican thing to do? We're Anglicans, not Roman Catholics. Do we need to go to confession? 
Well, the answer is actually that while perhaps understated compared to the role that confession plays in Roman Catholicism, this actually is an Anglican practice. So the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which is the uh, which was the official uh, prayer book of the Church of England for a very very long time. In fact, I think in some ways it still is, um, though they have more modern liturgical texts that they use often now. The 1662 prayer book instructs the minister to hear the confession of someone who is sick during a visitation. So the, during the visitation of the sick, the minister should offer an opportunity for them to confess their sins. And once they've done that, he says, our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath left power to his church to absolve all sinners who truly repent and believe in him, of his great mercy, forgive thee thine offenses. And by his authority committed to me, I absolve thee from all thy sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. This practice was kept by the 1928 Book of Common Prayer. If you turn to page 312 in the rubrics on that page, you'll see that it basically has the priest do the same thing. Later editions of the Book of Common Prayer in the United States, the 1979 Book of Common Prayer, which is used in the Episcopal Church, and the 2019 Book of Common Prayer, which is used in the Anglican Church in North America, both include rites for private or auricular confession. And finally, those of us in the Anglican province of America have a number of supplemental liturgical texts that are authorized for our use besides the Book of Common Prayer. So we have things like the Anglican Missal and the Priest Manual, which are, are, we're allowed to use. Um, and in the Priest Manual, uh, there is a, uh, a right for uh, confession. And further, it should be pointed out that, well, the practice of regular confession outside of visitation of the sick did kind of die out during the English Reformation. It was revived in about the 1800s during the Oxford Movement. So uh, Edward Bouvier Pusey, who I quoted just a moment ago, is actually the person who brought it back to the mo- or did, did the most to bring it back. Um, and in some ways, he went a little too far. He was prescribing, like, people wear hair shirts after going to confession, which is a little much. Uh, I don't typically do that. Um, You'd have to be really bad. I'm just kidding. We wouldn't do that. But he did bring it back, and it has become a a regular fixture for Anglicans since then. Now, question that I often get asked after people say, okay, well, maybe it's Anglican, but, but like, why should I go to confession? I mean, can I just confess my sins straight to God? You can. You can do that. Um, Though we do make confession a regular practice, Um, As Anglicans, if you do the daily office, we do it at morning prayer and we do it at evening prayer and we do it at every mass. So confession is very important. One thing that distinguishes us from our Roman Catholic friends, however, is that auricular confession is voluntary, not compulsory. So there is not a rule that says you must go to confession before you come to mass and receive Holy Communion. That is, again, one of those places in which I think when it's done right, Anglican spirituality is really liberating and humanizing. And when it's done wrong, it just becomes an excuse to never go to confession. Um, I don't like the phrasing. Some people talk about voluntary versus compulsory. I don't like that for describing confession um, because I think just personally in my own practice and devotion, I've come to view it as an immense privilege rather than a legalistic requirement. Um, and so anytime so, – so I, I just – I don't like thinking of it as compulsory even though it's something I try and do regularly. Um, and it should be said too. Anytime we confess our sins with perfect contrition, 
which means that we're motivated to repentance by faith in and love for God instead of the fear and punishment of hell, we receive the forgiveness of our sins. So there was a funny uh, picture going around during the pandemic because when churches closed, the Catholic church told parishioners, if you confess to God and you're perfectly contrite, he'll forgive your sins. And they would, people would put a picture of Martin Luther next to it and say, told you so, um, <laughs> which is pretty funny. Um, so, so it is true that, that if, you're, if you're really sorry for your sins, God will forgive you. And there, so there is a sense in which you don't have to come to confession in order to have your sins forgiven. That said, there are a number of reasons why it's a good idea. Um, and so Martin Thornton gives us, gives us a number of them. He says, first, uh, that auricular confession, and by auricular we mean private confession with a priest, not confession in your heart or confession during the uh, general service, um, that, that auricular confession is Christian. It allows us to confess our sins in a Christian way. Um, the other reason, he says, is that it's certain. It's certain. So again, remember, ex opere operato. It works because of the work done. The absolution is tied to the promise given to us by our Lord. So the priest speaks on behalf of Christ to the penitent, telling them that their sins are absolved in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Further, confession uh, is effectual because of an act of will. Um, so, or, or rather, it's certain because the penitent has, has made the decision to come to confession. So um, it's not emotionally based. Did I really confess well enough? Did I really mean it when I confessed the sins? Well, you came to confession. So that shows that you had the intention of, of repenting. Further, uh, confession cleanses us from all of our sins. So yesterday at Bible study, the question of sins that have been forgotten came up. Um, what about the sins we forget to confess? Well, first of all, if we forget then there's a degree to which we're less culpable for that sin. But also, um, we should acknowledge that sin is sin, and it can still detract from our spiritual progress, right? I mean, um, at the most we could say, or at the least we could say, uh, if we forget a certain sin, that's evidence of carelessness, right? Or forgetfulness, to go back to self-examination. But part of the right has a confession for those sins. For these and all my other sins which I cannot now remember— so we do confess those sins as well. So that means all of our sins are brought into the confession, even if we forgot them. Another uh, reason why confession is good is that it is a positive channel of grace. It's a positive channel from, of grace in which we are both cleansed and strengthened to fight temptation. So all of us, I think, have besetting sins, have habitual sins. They are probably different depending on our stage in life and our various experiences and walks, but we all have them. And just personally, I would tell you that I have been a Christian since I was very little and that the most progress I've made in getting past or reducing a besetting sin has been because I make a pretty regular confession to Father Gordon Anderson up at St. Albans in Joppa. Before that, there were always cycles. So, I mean, there were times where, okay, I can go, uh, you know, a certain amount of time without uh, lapsing. 
But then it happens and you think, okay, back to square one, you know, this many days since last accident, zero. Um, very repetitive, very cyclical, not much by way of progress. Going to confession has helped that. And there are probably a number of reasons for that. Um, primarily, I would think it would be the grace of God given in the sacrament. Um, there's also the fact that whenever I do something, I think, oh, man, now I've got to tell Father Gordon about this. Um, but, uh, but still, I think um, just, just personally, I will tell you, I have benefited greatly from going to private confession. Another, um, another important aspect is that, uh, like the sacraments in general, uh, confession gives us a degree of humility, right? We're acknowledging that we're sinful, not only in the privacy of our own hearts, but in front of, um, in front of someone else. The other thing is that it gives us the right penance. It gives us the right penance. So this is tricky. So, so part, of, part of confession is the priest gives you an act of penance. So, you know, 25 Hail Marys, 50 Our Fathers. Uh, usually it's not that. Uh, Father Gordon usually gives me a hymn. Read a hymn. Read hymn number 546 in the hymnal. Or read uh, Psalm 6. Or read a Bible passage. Something like that. Um, and it's good. The problem is that if we don't go to confession and we don't receive a penance from someone else, we're left to our own devices. And that can actually increase our anxiety um, or, or depending on how we do it, it might actually end up um, damaging other people, right? So uh, if, if I went, if I do something and I, I'm really well-meaning and I go to each, of, each person in the church who I've offended or who I, I thought that I acted against, I actually could risk making things worse, right? Could be a little bit awkward. Hey, you know, I'm really sorry I lusted after your wife this week. You know, I, <laughs> that wouldn't be a very good thing to do, would it? Uh, some, some sins need to be private. So we might think, well, I wronged them, so I need to go, I need to go apologize to them and, and ask for their forgiveness. Well, in that instance, maybe don't, maybe don't um, for the good of the community. Um, there is an Orthodox practice where they do this once a year. They go up to every person in the parish and they ask for their forgiveness for all the things that they've done wrong. It's very intense. I saw it one time. I have no desire to be a part of it. <laughs> um, so anyway, so, so having in the context of the confessional and being prescribed a penance, you know it is, it is a good thing to receive and it's enough. It's not, you're never left wondering what more do I need to do, um, that kind of thing. Um, in addition to absolution in the confession, in the confessional, the priest will give you advice. So, for example, if there's a habitual sin, the priest might talk about, okay, well, what are some things that you can do in order to not do that sin as much anymore? Um, I got great advice from a priest once. I made my confession in Florida to an old Episcopal priest, and he said, uh, he goes down the list of sins. He's giving me some counsel on things, and he gets to one, and he says, and on that, just, um, just don't do that anymore. Just, yeah, you're right. I probably shouldn't. Yeah, for the most part. <laughs> so it's good to get the advice from a, from a priest. Uh, the other thing um, is that there's a seal of confession. So if I tell just a random parishioner about a sin that I've committed, and I don't want it to be to scandalize the whole church, and it's really not uh, you know, everyone's business, um, 
they're, they're not obligated other than by sort of a word of promise to me that they won't tell anyone, right? A priest uh, is obligated by the seal of confession, which is very serious. If you violate the seal of confession, you could be defrocked as a priest. Um, and so what's said in confession does not leave confession, uh, the confessional. Um, and so the priest is obligated. Once, once we leave the confession, it's not brought up. The only time it might get brought up, so if you, if you make a regular confession and the same sin keeps coming up over and over again, the priest might say, can we talk about this in relation to previous confessions? In which case you can say yes or no. And if you say no, you drop it. Um, but the confession is, the seal of confession is very serious. Um, and the reason it's there is not to, um, not to protect bad people or to enable you to sin more, but so that you have the confidence that you can make that confession that you need to make. Um, and I will say this too. Uh, you know, sometimes people think, oh, but what about, you know, what about sex stuff? Uh, we've heard it all. We've heard it all. You're not going to surprise us. And like we said earlier, too, if, if the priest and the priest should be aware, should be living under the cross, it's not going to be a disgusting thing for them to hear insofar as they will, they will be able to, um, to show you God's love and grace. There are also, I think, just apart from the sacramental and theological, there are, um, there are psychological advantages to going to confession. I mean, we talk a lot today about therapy in our culture, and I think it's really good that therapy is more accessible for people, but there is a sense in which sometimes the therapist has taken the role of the priest a little bit too much. Um, and so in the confessional, uh, there are psychological benefits. So, so I think Thornton says, Perhaps there's a, an opportunity for catharsis that removes your inhibitions and helps you deal with repressions. You know, you actually get to speak it um, and tell someone about it um, rather than bearing it all on your own by yourself. Because it's a tough load to, to carry by yourself sometimes. And then the final thing Thornton says is, why not? Why not go to confession? He says, um, <laughs> is it not just a little silly and flagrantly inefficient to cut the lawn with, lawn with nail scissors when God has taken the trouble to supply a very workmanlike motor mower. <laughs> so he's given, us, he's given us this sacrament, so we should use it. So uh, briefly, because we're coming up on the end of our time, I wanted to just run through the process of confession. We know how the confession works in the Mass, and we know how the confession works in the daily office because we've done them. But the process of confession um, begins with self-examination and prayer. Typically, the penitent will kneel at the altar rail. um, And meanwhile, while the priest is getting ready, he actually says certain prayers um, to prepare for hearing the confession. Um, So those are in the priest's manual on pages 19 to 20. Um, The priest prays, O Lord Jesus, I desire to administer the sacrament of penance, that with, with that same surpassing love with which thou didst hollow this ordinance, when with most earnest desire for our salvation thou didst institute it, to be administered by the apostles and their successors to the praise of God the Father and the salvation of all mankind. I beseech thee that it may profit me and all and each unto whom I shall minister it in union with that love of thine to the increase of our salvation and of our everlasting happiness. Let the grace of thy Holy Spirit so enlighten and kindle my senses and my heart that according to thy good pleasure I may fulfill the ministry laid upon me and may be counted worthy to be defended and preserved from every assault and temptation 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And then he prays a prayer for wisdom uh, that he would rightly administer the penance and, and, the, um, and the sacrament. Once the priest then enters the space, typically pull up a chair right next to the altar rail. He looks forward while the penitent looks at his profile. Um, and the penitent initiates the, uh, the encounter by saying, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. In which case the priest says, the Lord be in thy heart and upon thy lips, that so thou mayest worthily confess all thy sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The penitent then makes their confession. Um, there's a, a, a form, I confess to Almighty God, to all the saints and to you, Father, that I have sinned very much in thought, word, and omission by my own great fault since my last confession, which was however long ago. When I received absolution and performed my penance, I have committed these sins. And then they, uh, they list the sins. I find it helps to write them out ahead of time through, after going through self-examination because if I get into the confessional without that, I'll forget a bunch of them. Um, and that's not good. I want to be thorough. Um, and then he finishes, the, the penitent finishes the confession Um, I'll try to do better, and I humbly ask pardon of God and of you, Father. I ask for penance, advice, and absolution. Amen. When the confession ends, the priest then can go down the list of sins that have been mentioned and address them with a few words of counsel to the penitent. Um, And again, this isn't accusatory. This is for the good of the person confessing. So um, Kierkegaard talks about this in a sermon on on, um, confession. He says, who's condemning you? When you come to confession, not the priest, not God, you condemn you, um, and the priest is there to help you. Um, and so sometimes, you know, sometimes uh, I think a mark of a good confession is you're confessing things, and the priest can say, "Well, you really don't have to be so hard on yourself." You know, sometimes you're just you're just uh, you're kind of over uh, being oversensitive to things, um, and can help you kind of see uh, to how how to have grace on yourself um, for some some things. And then there are some things where you really do need some help um, to get past them. After uh, the, um, uh, and by the way, so, so the penance that's given to you typically should match the sin in some way. However, uh, if the sin is a private sin, the priest will never give you a public penance. So it would never be, uh, if you did something in secret, it would never be go tell, every, go confess in front of the whole church, something like that. You, we wouldn't do that. Um, that it's, it's very discreet. Um, and so then once the priest goes through, he offers the absolution. Almighty God, have mercy upon thee, forgive thee thy sins, and bring thee to everlasting life. The Almighty and merciful Lord grant thee pardon, absolution, and remission of thy sins. Amen. And then he, he, there are two more uh, prayers he prays that are for absolution. And then at the end, he says, go in peace. The Lord hath put away all thy sins and pray for me a sinner. And then he leaves. When he leaves, the penitent, penitent uh, performs their act of penance. The priest has a prayer that he prays after hearing a confession, and then, interesting enough, he actually performs the same penance he prescribes. So there's a sense in which the priest is, is helping you bear the burden, um, which I think is a cool thing. So that is the sacrament of, of confession, which, again, as Anglicans, we, we automatically practice corporate confession, so I didn't feel like we needed to talk about that as much, um, though a lot of what we've talked about today can be kind of imported into the act of corporate confession. It's good before Mass, for example, to spend 10 minutes in prayer about areas, doing a mini self-examination so that you're prepared for when the confession comes. Um, but it's helpful to have, uh, have, the, uh, have the confessional as an option. I post in the bulletin uh, that I hear the uh, confessions. 
Um, I hear those on Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Fridays during the office hours. So if there's ever a time that you would like to make use of that, you're welcome to uh, just come in. And again, we would handle that very discreetly. Nobody has to know why you're there. Um, and we would just come up here and do it. Um, I will be in the chapel this afternoon after we finish um, after we finish mass. If anybody would like to make a confession, um, if the door is open, you can come right in. If it's closed, just wait in the office or in the fellowship hall um, because that means someone else will be in there. So today we've talked about fasting. We've talked about self-examination. We've talked about confession. We talked about fasting as the absent absent as abstaining from food and um, so that we can better control our passions and unite our sufferings to our Lord. We've talked about self-examination, a practice that helps us see ourselves better and learn what must be done through the exercise of our imagination. And we've talked about confession, which cleanses us from sin. Um, Together, these three things form the foundation for the spirit of Lent, uh, there are other disciplines we can we can uh, practice during Lent. Almsgiving is always a good thing to do during this time of year as well. Um, but these three things, I think, are, are very helpful for us. Um, and so it's my prayer uh, that you've at least learned something uh, from what we've talked about today that will help you um, in your spiritual life. If you ever want some counsel or advice about how to apply some of the things that we've talked about in your given situation, I'm more than happy to sit down with you and talk one-on-one because I know sometimes during the Q&A, you don't want to ask something that's too personal. So I'm always happy to do that. Um, And if you found this helpful today, um, I'm thinking about doing this somewhat semi-regularly, maybe once a quarter or something, something like this, uh, focusing really on spiritual uh, discipline, spiritual growth, and things like that. So I'm thinking that um, in the next few months, maybe maybe in the summer, doing something like this again, um, but focusing on crafting and developing a rule of life, a rule of life. A rule of life is a personal schedule and set of disciplines that one commits to um, in order to intentionally develop as a disciple. So carrying over a lot of what we've talked about today um, into, into something else. Um, so before we end for the day, uh, are there any uh, questions about what we have talked about so far? Yes, Sally Lee. Uh, the prayer on 546, uh, it talks about whose sins thou dost forgive, they are forgiven. And those sins dost thou dost retain, are those the ones you don't say? Uh, the sins that are retained are the sins that aren't forgiven. Well, so, so I think the priest could withhold absolution in certain situations if he felt like it was a necessity to. If he felt like the person who was confessing wasn't... Was maybe not uh, yeah, really right, right, right. But that's, that's, that would be very exceptional. But he does have the discretion to... Oh, absolutely. It's not that. It's not, it's not the forgetting part. Like I said, the, the forgetting part is taken care of in and these and all the other sins which I forget. So we don't have to worry about the, the forgetful things. It's, it's the, it's, if, if the person were to indicate that it was an, a, a pattern of behavior they were not wanting to fix or something like that, then the priest could withhold. But again, it's a discretion thing on his part. So not... <clears throat> Being truly uh, sorry uh, when you come to 
union, you should be, your mind should be clear, you should have confessed. Right. And if, you, if you're not in a certain frame of mind, then you really shouldn't come. Correct. Yes. If, if there is something that is sticking out to you as far as I, this was a really bad sin and I feel like I need to confess it and I haven't, oh. it would be better to get a blessing than receive communion. St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we have to be very careful when we receive communion, lest we eat and drink damnation to our souls. What we don't want to do is be brazen about our sin, go up to communion like we deserve it or have earned it or something like that. Um, and because what, what that will do is calcify our hearts um, and make it harder for us uh, later to, to experience real contrition. Um, so it might be better to receive a blessing one time and then work on the confessing of that sin th- during the week and then next week coming back and receiving communion or something like that. Um, but yeah, we, have, we should be careful um, about that if, if we're not in the right state. There are also small acts of contrition one can do before receiving communion that might be sufficient. So the St. Augustine's prayer book has an act of contrition at the beginning. I sometimes, because my confessor's Father Gordon and he lives an hour away, I don't always make it to confession before Sunday. And so if I feel like I need to, because the priest kind of has to eat and drink. Um, so there's an act of contrition in the, in the St. Augustine's prayer book that I... I have that prayer book. It's a great prayer book. I love it. I love it. Since you were a teenager, really? Oh, it's a great prayer book. I can't find it right now because, of course, I couldn't when I, I need to. But said the page I wrote it any other uh, questions? Okay. Well, what we'll do is just take uh, a minute or two here. Um, I'm going to get vested for mass, and we'll get the table, uh, the altar set up, um, and then we will uh, we'll do a mass, the votive mass for the propagation of the Holy Gospel. Um, there will be bulletins we'll bring up here in a moment, um, but we'll, we'll, get, we'll try and start that in maybe the next five minutes.